Hello, welcome to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with your Dana Osband. Before we begin today, I just want to make a quick correction on yesterday's episode on Daftet with regard to the overview of halakhic literature, Talmudic literature. I inadvertently and truly inadvertently, but it's embarrassing nonetheless, I will share that with you. The um, Yerushalmi is attributed to Rabbi Yochanan, not to Rabbi Chia. The Tosefta is what is attributed to Rabbi Chia. Now you know. Today's daf, brachot yud. Yardena, take it away. So, so much again to talk about on one daf of Gemara. Brachos is just, it's amazing. Um, but today I think I'm going to start with the top of the daf because we're introduced to Berea for the first time. And I just don't see how we could bypass this uh, wonderful story between Berea and her husband, Rabbi Meir. So many of our listeners may be familiar with who Berea is. But just very quickly, um, Buria is a woman who in her own right was very learned. She was married to Rabbi Meir, uh, who is a very important Tana. Her father was also an important Tana, Rabbi uh, Hanina ben Tadron, who is one of the Asara Haruge Malchus, one of the 10 martyrs. Um, and I'm sure as we move through Dapiomi, uh, there will be more stories about Buria to come up. But very often we see Buria with her husband, Rabbi Meir, and they sort of have these like back and forths where they um, sort of spar over something together. So we have one of those examples here at the top of our top. And I want to share that with everybody here today. So there was a group of like basically troublesome people in Rabbi Mayer's neighborhood. And they really caused Rabbi Mayer a lot of distress. They were basically bothering Rabbi Mayer. There's a, a group of not great people living in the neighborhood. Now here's where the Gemara gets very interesting. So Rabbi Mayer wanted Rachamim for them. And so he prayed that they would die. Now, obviously, this seems to be very interesting. How could it be that Atana would pray for other people to die? Most of the commentators basically explain that almost because these people were such bad sinners, it was almost more merciful for them to basically be um, to be punished um, uh, through death because that would, in a way, redeem them. And then maybe they would get some sort of reward in the in the world to come in Olam Haba. So he's davening that these guys through, but meaning it as an act of rachamim, that they should die. So Amr lay Buria debate. So his wife Buria says to him, Madate, what's your reasoning for this? Why would you daven that these people should? And she quotes a puzzle that the Gemara previously had been discussing. Because sinners should stop existing um, from the earth. So in other words, what she's saying to Rabbi Meir is, are you trying to be like David HaMelech, who says that Patuk, it's in Tehillim, right? That just as David HaMelech prayed that all sinners shouldn't be on earth anymore, that's what you are davening for also. But she points something out to Rabbi Meir. She says, but is the word chotim? No, the word is chataim ketiv. In other words, she makes a distinction, even though we just uh, translated the Pasuk as and the traditional translation is that you that sinners should cease from earth. She points out by saying, no, it doesn't say chotim, which would be grammatically correct, meaning people who sin. Rather, it says chataim. It means really just sin should cease to exist from the earth. 
And furthermore, she points out to him that at the end of the Pesach, it says, and the wicked should be no more. So definitely it would be that what? That once sinners are no longer in the world, would there still be no more wicked in the world? Of course not. Even if you got rid of a certain group of sinners, what would happen? There would still be more evil people later who would come up. Rather, what should you pray? You should pray that they should have rachamim, that what? That they should actually do teshuva. And therefore, once they do teshuva and they don't sin anymore, then what? They will not be wicked anymore. And so what did Rabbi Meir do? He listens to her and he prays that there should be rachamim on them and they should do teshuva. Now, I know this seems to be sort of a very sort of cute little story between a husband and a wife, um, but I think it actually brings up something very, very beautiful. Um, <clears throat> you know, first of all, that often I think sort of this confusion between sinners and the sin, which again, I don't think is anything new or innovative that I'm sharing with anybody, but I think just pointing out the story that shows that in the Gemara is really interesting. Again, also that it's sort of like a wife correcting or sort of giving a new interpretation to Rabbi Meir. And then we see that Rabbi Meir listens to Buria and changes what he davens for uh, based on her interpretation of these uh, sutras. I think this was just a lovely exchange, a good introduction to who Buria and Rabbi Meir were, and also just some nice Torah that she shares, uh, this idea of really thinking about that when we are bothered by people or we see evil in the world or we see sin in the world, what we really should be davening for is that those people feel compelled to do teshuva, not necessarily that those people cease to exist in the world. So, Anne, what do you think of this story? Um, so I wonder to what extent it's a window into, you know, the workings between Rebbe Meir and Berea and to what extent it really is, um, you know, something we all really need to hear. I think it's very important that we distinguish between the sinner and the sin as bystanders. I think that Rabbi Mayer's reaction to these thugs is very human. Um, and I think that the phenomenon of his wife coming and saying like, okay, I hear you, but let's redirect that is helpful. You know, just in terms of how we handle anything that's bothersome to us. I think that the comment of sinner versus sin in our era when there's such a complicated range of I don't know, Jewish practice, you know, it's a lesson we can all take to heart. Right. And I, I love the way that you said it, that you, it, there's something so human about this interaction. Like you could see where Rabbi Mayer, where someone gets so agitated with another person and then you sort of have the spouse come in and sort of be like, hey, let's take a second. Let's, re you know, reframe how you're thinking about this. There might be a better way to think about it emotionally to get to a different place. And we see that she really sort of helps her husband get to that different place and his actions afterwards are really different. So I, on so many levels, I think this is just like a lovely tidbit in the Gemara itself. Again, not saying anything that's so particularly innovative. Um, many of us have heard, you know, you know, hate the sin, not the sinner, but just the whole interaction, the humanity of it, the speech between a wife and a husband, I think it, I just, I loved it. But there are other things on this stuff I could also talk about. Well, I'll talk about something else on this stuff. Um, 
How's that for a segue? I'm going to come, <laughs> the Gemara comes back to talking about davening, as is appropriate in Masach Brachot, right? So, V'amar Rabbi Yossi Barchanina Mishum Rabbi Lazar Ben Yaakov, Aya Amor Adam B'makom Gavoa V'yitpalel, Ela B'makom Namuch V'yitpalel. It's a, Rabbi Yossi Rabbi Hanina says, don't, a person should not stand in a high place to pray, but rather in a low place to pray. Shana'emar, because there's a verse in Tehillim, Mima'akim Kratich Hashem, from the depths we call out to God. So from the depths means he's interpreting this literally, not, he, he's interpreting this literally that when you are in the depths is the right time to call out to Hashem, not just literally, but prescriptively. And if you are on, if you are at the top of a hilltop, that's not the right time, place, whatever. Um, it's interesting, I think, in particular because I think many of us relate to mima amakim, right? Shiramala mima mima amakim is one of the capital tehillim mizmorei tehillim that we say in in times of need. So we don't, I think, relate to it necessarily as we need to be in a valley. We relate to it as we are in the depths of our emotional need, our spiritual need we're calling out to god because we have some angst of of one form or another to say that is a physical low place is the appropriate place to daven i think is interesting and again brings me back to this importance of place that the physical plant so to speak of where we are when we pray can have real influence on the nature of how we pray the idea that we don't go to the high places well any student of Navi can relate to those high places as a catchphrase. I mean, it's not used here, the same vocabulary, but the concept of it is the location throughout Navi of, of Odazara, meaning the idea that you go to the hilltop and you worship your God is perhaps universal in that era, in that location. But we say, no, no, we're going to pray from the depths. We have a, a message running throughout the nature of prayer of humility. The very idea that our Sinai was the humble mountain, the low mountain that we can't even identify. The fact that Moshe Rabbeinu encounters God in the sna in the burning bush, but yet it again, it's not it's not on a high in a high place. It's you know in the thicket somewhere, and so that when we turn to God in from our own depths of need of prayer, we put ourselves in a low place physically in a way to to keep ourselves humble, I think. I think there's something very important about that. The very nature of prayer, um, to me, is a humbling experience, right? How, who are we to reach out to God to say, can you help us? Can you save us? Can we praise you even? Who are we to do that? And the answer is, okay, but God has given us this vehicle for prayer. We're commanded, we're in, enjoined, rather, perhaps better, to reach out to him. So we need to do it from our own lowly place, both physically and in our own place of need, but also recognizing like that is exactly what provides us the means to reach out to Soha Karash Barku, our own humility. Because if we're being arrogant about it, if we're not in our own lowliness, then there is no connection to God because we're too great. We don't have, we can't recognize the distinction between, you know, what it is, what it means to be a human being with regard to the divine, uh, which is a hard enough concept as it is. Uh, okay, one more bit here in the Gemara. It says, Tanya Namihachi, there's a brighter that says, that makes this kind of same point, Lo Yamod Adam, Lo Algabe Kisei, Lo Algabe Shrafraf, Lo Makom Gavoa Viet Palel. A person should not pray standing on a chair or standing on a bench um, or in a high place. 
rather but he should be in a low place and pray. So this Brita takes, I think, a slightly different approach to the same concern. The upshot is the same, diving from the low place, but don't stand on a chair, don't stand on a bench. A shraf in modern Hebrew means a footstool, a step stool rather. It means, uh, my understanding there is there's a concern of you might fall off, right? If you're standing on a chair, then your focus is on your balance first and foremost. You may want to be directing your whole attention to your actual tefillah, but you do have to maintain where you're standing. So the idea is, no, you don't have any distractions. Put yourself in a little place. You're not going to fall down. You're going to direct the entirety of who you are. And so the same message of from a low place takes on a whole different meaning. And yet both are, I think, valuable lessons to our uh, approach to tefillah. So that's really interesting because earlier in the DAP, there is a beautiful discussion about uh, David HaMelech and many of the Tehillim he wrote that start with Baruchin Afshi. And they, one of the things that it talks about, so there's basically, there's five Tehillim that start with Baruchin Afshi, that three sort of appears five times. And the Gemara is trying to unpack what do they correlate to? And I just want to share, because I think it really contrasts, you know, from saying that we dive in Mimam Makim, sort of like approaching God from a place of humility, physically and in a mental place. But here the Gemara talks about what we have in common with Hashem, with God. Um, so it says the following, the Gemara, and this is a little bit earlier. So it's saying, um, uh, it's it's in a discussion, we're talking about Rav Shimi, uh, Bar Ukva uh, is talking to Rav Shimon Ben Pazi, um, and he says, "Ana achika amina, hani chamisha barchinafshi keneged mi amran David." So he basically says he wants to explain what are the five uh, barchinafshis that we have. What was David Hamelch talking about? Why did he have these five? Lo amrinan ele keneged agadosh baruchu ukeneged aneshama. So he stated them because. It's ways that Hakadosh Baruch Hu, it's way that God is similar to the human soul. And what are the five ways? The same way that God fills the whole world, the neshama fills, right? The soul fills an entire body. So that's one. Just as God is observes, but is not observed. So too, the soul is um, is ob- observes, right? It sees everything that's going on in the person, uh, but it is not observed. We can't actually see the soul. Just as God nourishes the whole world, the soul nourishes the whole body. So that's three, four. Just as God is pure, the soul is pure. And the last one, Just as God sort of abides in the room of rooms, meaning somehow God is secret or hidden from us, so too the soul as well abides in, um, in the room of rooms. And therefore, what Rabbi Shimon ben Pazi concludes, so the purpose of Barchinachi is for someone who possesses these five attributes, these five uh, midot, right, which is a human, a human who has this neshama with these uh, 
uh, which is similar to God in this way, can come and then praise God in the same way. And I, I, I just, I thought this was such a beautiful piece of Gemara, like reminding us in a way what the neshama is and how it's similar to God. I guess it doesn't invoke or say the words B'Tselem Elohim, but to me, this was like, this is exactly how we are. This is the piece of us. This is the divine spark that each of us carry. Um, and again, I think that's, you know, a very interesting contrast to the piece that you brought up, Anne, you know, which is like where we were similar to God, but yet at the same time, there's so much humility with which we have to approach prayer and that conversation with God. There's our DAF discussion for the day. Uh, find us where you find your podcasts or join our WhatsApp group, rate us, uh, rank us, give a review. Uh, get in touch with us with any feedback or comments or questions. We'd love to hear from you. And between now until tomorrow, go and learn.